Hi, this is Mark Raven again. This is chapter two of Practicing Lean, uh, written by and read by me. Again, to learn more about the book and how you can donate to the Louise H. Batts Patient Safety Foundation, where all proceeds uh, from the sale of the book and audiobook are going to, you can go to www.practicinglean.com. Chapter 2 by Mark Graven. It has been over 20 years since I graduated from college and entered the working world. Graduate school took two years with a six-month working internship in the middle, but let's say I've been working for 20 years. As of this writing in 2015, my career has had two very equal halves. The first 10 years were focused on manufacturing, when my career aspirations included moving up through roles like plant manager, VP of operations, and chief operating officer in large companies. Through happenstance, along with my own choices, I ended up spending the last 10 years of my career working in healthcare. Thankfully, I was able to build upon mistakes and lessons from my time in manufacturing. But being in an unfamiliar setting, I made a few mistakes as I started anew in hospital settings. So I have two first years of lean that I'll write about, from 1995 in manufacturing and 2005 in healthcare. See one, do some, teach a bunch. There's a common expression that I learned in healthcare. See one, do one, teach one. This describes the traditional nursing mindset for how one progresses towards competence. First, you have to learn, whether that's from a book, a video, or a live instructor. Once you have some knowledge, you need to gain experience by trying, go, and do. In my experience, learning by doing is really only most effective when you have a capable coach or mentor. How many people keep doing something on their own, playing golf, for example, and end up just reinforcing bad habits instead of learning and getting better? Once you've learned how to do something effectively, a great way to test for competence is gauging somebody's ability to teach what they've learned and done. That's all a decent model, although I don't think one is the number that allows you to progress to the next step. Sometimes you need to see three before you can do or try. You might even need to do seven before you try to teach. It depends on the situation. At a high level, I've gone through a similar progression in my lean career. First, I gained knowledge by reading books and from what my mentors taught me, or they helped me see on my own. I've gone and done things, such as designing and implementing a Kanban system for parts. I think the ultimate level is the ability to teach others to understand lean and to take action using lean methods. An individual can learn and understand a lean concept or method. You can only get so much accomplished by doing things alone, something I'll discuss later in this chapter. There's a great multiplier effect that comes from teaching and helping others see and do. Take the Kaizen style of continuous improvement for one. We can see Kaizen and then start to do Kaizen, but improvement is limited if we don't then inspire others to see and do Kaizen themselves. We reach our peak by everybody doing Kaizen and teaching Kaizen to others. Also, see, do, and teach shouldn't be a one-time linear progression. Even teachers of Lean should continue learning new things and getting better at the things they do and the way they teach. See, do, teach should all include the cycles of continuous improvement that we should love as lean professionals. The progression also probably includes starting with seeing and learning individual lean tools. Then over time, we probably see how the pieces connect and interact, seeing lean as a system rather than a tool. 
As an aside, the phrase lean or lean sigma is a toolbox, so grab the right tool you need at the moment is like nails on a chalkboard to me. But now I'm talking about other people's mistakes, calling lean a set of tools. Let me get back to my own mistakes and lessons. My early days in manufacturing at General Motors. When I started my career, I was bright-eyed and, like many, wanted to help make the world a better place. I was excited about doing that by improving how businesses run and helping the people who work in them. I'd like to think I'm still trying to change the world, now that I think about it. Much of my formal industrial engineering education focused on technical methods, such as simulation, queuing theory, and just-in-time inventory management and production principles. Northwestern University, my undergraduate alma mater, offered a class in organizational psychology that I took, but the emphasis was generally more on math than people, maybe to my detriment. My father, who retired after working for 40 years as an engineer and leader at General Motors, attended one of Dr. W. Edwards Deming's famous four-day workshops at GM. This led to me picking up his copy of Deming's book, Out of the Crisis, during a holiday break of my senior year. Yes, I read that book for fun. That's appropriate, I guess, since Deming always said the goals of his workshops were to learn and have fun. Dr. Deming's approach to psychology and the human side of business and management really appealed to me. I decided that I wanted to work at a company that embraced those principles, even if the company wasn't perfect. It was just a couple of years after Deming's death, and he left quite a wake behind him in the American auto industry. He worked closest with Ford, it seems, but also spent some time at GM. So you'd think that I wouldn't have started my career at GM if I wanted to work in a Deming culture. I had actually found an opportunity that I thought would allow me to see Deming principles in action, taking an engineering job at the GM Livonia engine plant. GM recruiters talked about how the plant had a different type of contract with the union and embraced something they called the Livonia philosophy which was basically a rewording of Deming's key principles, or the Deming philosophy. I thought this sounded like a great place to work. As it turned out, the plant had previously embraced Deming's approach, but the Livonia philosophy sort of died with Dr. Deming. Actually, the philosophy died when the plant manager who embraced Deming had been promoted and eventually rose quite high in the ranks within GM. By June of 1995, when I started working at GM, there was a new plant manager and the philosophy was, quite ironically, nothing but slogans and posters on the walls. Our plant was really struggling. Employee morale was extremely low, and there was a very combative relationship between the union and management, something I don't blame the union for. Our productivity was just about half that of a similar Toyota plant that produced similar V8 engines using similar technology. And our quality was poor. We produced an engine that performed brilliantly under the hoods of Cadillacs and some Oldsmobiles, but the defect rate in the plant and in customer use was very high. We produced about 800 engines a day, and anywhere from 3 to 10 a week would fail or sort of blow up under the hood of these new cars, based on the weekly field service incident report voicemails that were sent. We didn't have email yet. The plant had managers that were decidedly old school in their approach to managing. I'd hate to call it leading. Workers got blamed for problems and were lectured about how they either didn't care or didn't try hard enough to produce quality. I realized that, as Deming taught, the quality and productivity problems were quite systemic and were therefore management's responsibility. 
Without getting into details, I saw many management decisions that directly interfered with producing the best possible quality. For example, management wouldn't let workers stop the line to do scheduled maintenance or quality checks as the manufacturing plan mandated. Yet, workers always got yelled at when, predictably, machines or tools broke down or defects reached our internal customer, the Cadillac assembly plant in Hamtramck. Thanks to all of that, morale was terrible. And I understood why when I heard production workers say things like, they want me to check my brain at the door. They hired me for my back, not my brain. I want to stop the line to do my quality checks, but management says keep the line running. GM powertrain corporate leadership wasn't happy, of course, with our poor productivity and bad quality. Unfortunately, I'm not sure they believed that employee morale was much of a problem to solve. So, with a fresh degree and a youthful energy, I set out to try to make things better. Some of my early mistakes and lessons in manufacturing. Looking back, I think I did some things well. I didn't know any better, so I think I had an intrinsic respect for the UAW members who worked on the assembly line. While you do hear many negative things about the union and so-called lazy UAW workers in the news growing up around Detroit, I think I spent more time talking to and listening to the workers in the machining departments that I was assigned to than most people did. At the Gemba, but doing what? Another thing I did naturally was to spend a lot of time out of the office area, being out on the factory floor, what we would call the Gemba these days in lean practice. While I spent time getting to know the men who worked in the area, and it was all men, I probably focused too much on collecting data, observing and thinking about the engine block line instead of collaborating with people. But then again, I was already bucking the GM culture a bit, so I probably shouldn't be too hard on myself. I spent countless hours standing on metal catwalks above the engine block line, timing the machines and automation that carved out metal from the aluminum blocks. I observed and tracked how much buffer inventory there was between each machine, often downloading data from the computers that tracked a lot of this automatically. With those observations and that data, I'd retreat to my computer in the office. That computer wasn't connected to the internet, so it was a pretty distraction-free environment. I'd sit and put data into the simulation models that I built to help make a case for how and why line productivity wasn't helped by keeping buffers of parts in between every single machine. That's the type of work I was expected to do in the old GM culture, so I had to do some of that. My mistake was spending too much time on that instead of engaging people in continuous improvement. But again, the prevailing culture actively discouraged that sort of respect for and interaction with the line workers. Going to the Gemba isn't good without the right mindsets. Jumping ahead a bit to the year 2005, during my last year in my last manufacturing company, we had a vice president of Lean and Six Sigma who didn't really know much about either methodology. He was a finance guy, punching his ticket through a leadership rotation as part of his fast-track career. Given his traditional management mindset, which included setting high targets and putting pressure on people, this caused many problems as some of us were trying to create a lean culture. One day, my director and I wanted to take the VP down to the shop floor to see improvements that had been made. This Gemba trip had been scheduled pretty far in advance. It wasn't his style to leave the office area. Knowing that the production area had some major downtime on a key piece of equipment, we tried setting his expectations that he wasn't about to see full production because the one piece of equipment was broken down. He replied, 
Well, maybe if we sent these people home early, that would give them an incentive to keep the machines running. Wow. He didn't understand manufacturing at all. If anything, the employees did a great job of keeping the old equipment running at all. We tried to keep his Gemba visit as short as possible, since we were afraid he would say the wrong thing to the wrong person. It was a great reminder that we have to be careful when we encourage leaders to go to the Gemba. If they're going to have the wrong mindsets, behave badly, and say the wrong things, it might be better if some of those leaders just stayed in their office. Improving ergonomics, but how? In the first few weeks of my new job, I was excited to be sent to Lansing for a formal ergonomics class and certification. I think it was a full week's worth of time, an investment in my own engineering skills, and more importantly, in improving health and safety in the workplace. With the blessing of the joint GM-UAW class, I was now considered to be fully capable of doing ergonomics improvement. I had seen examples in the classroom, and I wasn't qualified to teach. My mistake was too much solo doing, working by myself rather than engaging the employees. In one example, there was an easily identifiable ergonomics problem at the end of the engine block machining line. As the completed washed aluminum blocks were pushed to the end of the line by powered rollers, a production worker's job was to lift the block off of the line, placing it in a stack on a pallet with special plastic dividers. I think the blocks were stacked six to a layer and the blocks were four layers high. Now, the workers had an overhead hoist to use, thankfully since the blocks were heavy. GM wasn't that bad and in case you thought they were lifting them by hand. The ergonomic problem one that I shouldn't have seen certification to see, was the bending and reaching. When the pallet was empty, the worker would have to bend down a lot to guide the block onto the first layer. After laying down the first three blocks, they'd bend and lean over to place the next three. Even the second layer was too low. When we produced about 450 to 500 engines in a shift and there wasn't a lot of job rotation, there was a lot of repetitive motion for anybody, yet alone guys aged 55 to 60. Job rotation could have helped, but with union seniority and rules and a team coordinator or supervisor who didn't want to be bothered, people generally worked the same job all the time unless there was an absence and need to fill in. I was asked to solve the problem. I was motivated to do so because I believe strongly that proper ergonomics was a must. People might not have enjoyed coming to work, but they certainly shouldn't get hurt on the job. I wanted to help avoid injuries. I came up with a solution after getting guidance from some more experienced engineers and finding out what other plants did. The solution was to install two rotating lift tables that the pallets of blocks would be set on. The base for the tables would have to be set into the floor, which meant cutting concrete and digging big square holes to set those bases in. With the lift tables, the workers could push a button to easily raise and lower the height. That, along with an easy spin of the table, meant that bending and leaning would be eliminated. My memories of this work are pretty clear in terms of identifying vendors, researching costs, drawing up the layout, leaving enough space so the tables wouldn't hit each other when rotating, and working with maintenance to schedule the work. What I don't remember is conversations with the workers about the solution I was getting installed. Thinking back to the prevailing culture, there was nothing in the culture that would have encouraged me to get much input from the workers because, again, they were asked to leave their brains at the door. As an engineer, it was my job to design the equipment and to fix the ergonomics. I wasn't being coached to do any differently 
as I wasn't yet working with the internal lean coaches. I got the tables installed. It was a bit stressful because when you're cutting big holes in concrete, you have to be right wet rather than saying, let's Kaizen that. The tables worked as designed, but the workers didn't really like using them. They didn't use the lift or rotate functions. There was a certain macho mindset in the culture that valued being tough over working in an ergonomic way. If the employee input had been them saying, we like it the way it is, that wasn't going to be an option for me or GM. We had to give them a more ergonomic workstation. Reflecting on this, I should have talked more with the guys. I remember one of them went by the nickname Bama, as he was, of course, from Alabama. He was part of the big wave of Southern African Americans who migrated to Detroit from Alabama and adjacent states to take auto industry jobs in the 1960s. I should have talked with Bama more about the problem. I should have helped him understand the importance of ergonomics instead of being so stubborn about having to implement my solution. I probably should have asked him if he had his own ideas for improving the ergonomics of the job. That might not have helped achieve buy-in, but I should have tried. We went from a work area that had bad ergonomics to a work area where we had to police the workers, with the team coordinator having to threaten disciplinary action if the workers didn't use the lift tables to eliminate the bending. It was better in some ways, but not ideal. Pointing out the right problems the wrong way. As I've said, I place a very high value on safety and ergonomics. In our machining line, it was pretty common to have grease on the floors, thanks to cutting fluid mist, a health and safety problem that others were trying to fix, and parts that had that mist and grease on them. Part of the strategy was using a hose to spray down floors, even though that wasn't fixing the root cause. The hose was quite heavy, not quite a firefighter's hose, and it was on a retractable reel. At some point, the retractor was broken and glitchy. When a worker tugged on it, it often didn't retract. Or, at times, it would suddenly start reeling up and pull the worker. With the slippery floor, it was an injury waiting to happen. I tried speaking up for safety, as current GM CEO Mary Barra has encouraged people to do. I formally reported the problem to maintenance. I saw another near miss. So I followed up with the maintenance manager, Jim, a guy who had been there forever and was close to retirement. One day, the hose with its heavy brass nozzle went flying and almost hit a worker in the head. I was fed up. I escalated the issue by leaving a very pointed and angry-sounding voicemail for the plant superintendent, telling him that I had repeatedly reported the near misses and nothing was happening. I needed help getting the maintenance manager to prioritize this issue. After my call, the plant superintendent, Bob, must have yelled and cursed at Jim. This was Bob's standard approach. Later that day, I was standing in the office area at another industrial engineer's desk with my back to the aisle. Out of nowhere, a pair of really rough hands was suddenly around my neck, gently squeezing me with a creepy silence. I turned and saw that the hands belonged to Jim, the grizzled old maintenance manager, as he slowly removed them from my neck and gave me a glare. Jim had told me before that I was being a pain about reporting that hose problem, but this time he didn't say a word as he walked away. The hose reel eventually got fixed, but I sure wasn't making any friends. I never got thanked by anybody other than the UAW worker out on the floor who knew I was sticking up for him and his colleagues. In my youthful zeal, I was trying to do the right thing, but did so in a very clumsy way. I should have talked more with Jim and probably should have appreciated that he had a lot on his plate. 
My assumption that he was tired and didn't care anymore might have been true, but he cared enough to not appreciate being called out and yelled at by Bob. I should have handled that better. There's no such thing as a dumb question. In the name of improvement, Powertrain Headquarters hired a number of employees away from Toyota suppliers and Nissan to learn about what was then called either just-in-time or Japanese manufacturing methods. The term lean was still relatively uncommon, as the book Lean Thinking hadn't been published yet, although The Machine That Changed the World was published in 1990. With those external hires, we had a group of about 10 employees who were meant to serve as internal consultants and coaches. That's a lot of people to work with a plant of 800 people. But they were frustrated because the local plant leaders really wanted nothing to do with them. We're here from headquarters and we're here to help is a statement that usually causes eyes to roll in manufacturing. The external hires were given an office that was up in a mezzanine level, just about as far away from the plant manager's office as physically possible. They wanted to help but spent a lot of time playing cards and wondering why they had left their old companies. I wasn't the only one disappointed with the gap between the hiring story and the working reality. But I was an eager student who was willing to learn from these mentors. I was caught in between the existing predominant GM culture and these lean thinkers who were experienced, brilliant, and kind teachers. The traditional GM culture wanted me to be a traditional engineer, which meant coming up with answers and solutions and implementing projects that helped improve productivity and quality. They were mainly concerned with productivity. I wanted to do things differently. Although that team of consultants wasn't allowed to implement much of anything, they would do a lot of waste walks with me. They'd point out problems or things that weren't managed properly, and they'd explain how it was different in a Toyota-style culture. We daydreamed about what we'd like to change and how things could be better. Headquarters knew our performance was poor, but there were a few quality incidents that led them to bring in a new plant manager. The product and process designers for our factory decided that our North Star engine was so well designed, it was going to be so well built to aerospace tolerances, that our assembly line would not have a hot test station at the end of the line. The engines would be shipped directly to the car assembly plants, assuming good quality, and the first time an engine would be cranked up would be at the end of car assembly. The assumption of built-in quality was a very bad assumption. The GM engine plant had some very major quality spills, where defective engines were caught at the end of the car assembly line. That meant more than 1,000 potentially defective engines were upstream in other cars and in our engine plant's finished goods inventory. That's a very expensive problem to fix, whereas a hot test station could have caught the problem much earlier. Better yet would have been better process controls that would have prevented the error in the first place, or a management system that allowed workers to actually do their scheduled quality checks and to actually stop the line of a process that was statistically out of control. I had to argue once with Bob, the plant superintendent, about why out of control was so bad. Bob argued that the parts weren't out of spec, so it was okay to keep the line running. Well, that caught up with us. We finally got a new plant manager, Larry Spiegel, who was one of the first GM leaders to be trained at NUMI, the legendary joint venture plant that was run by Toyota and GM, meaning it was run as a TPS or lean management system. I finally saw what good leadership looked like. The internal lean consultants were turned loose and they started training and coaching people. 
We started fixing the things that mattered, the management system and the culture. I learned a lot of great leadership and change management lessons, and I was hooked. Larry spent the first few months spending a lot of time at the Gemba, talking to everybody he could and really doing a lot of listening. This was very different behavior from the previous old-school imperial plant manager. I was young and anxious for change, and I asked Larry one day when changes would be coming. That's not the dumb question I refer to. Larry said something to the effect of, I know what the problems are and what the solutions are, but the people here don't know that yet. He was building trust in relationships. Larry had moved from a GM transmission plant to a GM engine plant. Dealing with the common complaint of, but we're different here, was still an issue, but not as much as going from, say, manufacturing to healthcare. I think Larry knew he had to go slow to go fast, as we say in Lean. So here's the question I asked Larry that I would now consider to be a dumb question. Larry was in our department for a skip-level department meeting, and he was taking questions from the hourly and salaried staff. We were barely becoming a real team at that point. There weren't many questions, so I asked this. I know our quality and productivity are much worse than our competitors. Which of those do we improve first? Larry looked at me patiently instead of glaring at me for asking such a dumb question. He said, basically, we need to improve both, and we'll improve both at the same time through this new way of managing. It's not one or the other. As I've seen that play out in many settings, working together to reduce waste and improve processes leads to better flow, better quality, and better productivity. It happens in manufacturing, and it happens in healthcare. That was a pivotal moment for me in my early lean days. Even though Dr. Deming wrote about quality and productivity going hand in hand, I don't think I had heard anybody say so in the workplace. Understanding why we were changing the management system and embracing lean was an important thing to understand. Starting with why, then understanding our problems are steps we must take before implementing tools. I was fortunate to have mentors and teachers early on who emphasized some of the nuances of lean that some people seem not to learn. Again, I think we should be patient to a point with people who haven't been taught something or haven't learned it yet. We probably shouldn't be infinitely patient with people since there's so much good information about lean available for free online or in inexpensive books. Early mistakes in healthcare. I made mistakes during my remaining years in manufacturing, even after working at GM. As we practice lean, we should get better over time, but we shouldn't expect to make a leap to being perfect, whatever that means, after our first year or so. But to avoid boring you with other stories about what I would have done differently in different settings, I'll jump ahead to my transition to healthcare in 2005. When I had my opportunity to move into healthcare, I did so by taking a position with Valumetric Services, a consulting group that was, at the time, part of Johnson & Johnson. Hospitals are a very different setting than manufacturing, of course, with lots of new terminology and acronyms and things to figure out. In some ways, my first year of lean healthcare felt like another first year of lean. Based on my previous experiences in manufacturing, there were some things that I did better during my new start in healthcare, such as starting with problem statements, goals, and whys instead of tools. Building teams of frontline staff to teach and coach instead of doing lean things myself. 
and creating elements of a lean management system, such as a daily Kaizen process and coaching managers instead of just doing projects. That said, I think the biggest mistake I made in that first year was relying too much on examples and stories for manufacturing. I saw parallels and similarities between these different settings in the sense that a process is a process. A hospital laboratory is very much like a high-tech factory in that you have automation, skilled employees, and important time-sensitive work to do well. But stories about factories, even if they are stories about people and leaders, don't resonate with people in healthcare. Some of that, I think, comes from an ignorance about manufacturing. Some people in healthcare have never set foot in a factory, so they think manufacturing is archaic, dirty, or unsafe, or that people aren't expected to think. Those things aren't true, not in a lean factory, but biases against manufacturing often get in the way of people learning from that industry. I can bemoan that fact all day long and wish it wasn't so, but it was more important to adjust my approach. Now, I sometimes still use lessons learned and stories from manufacturing, but generally just with managers or executives. When I tell a story about someone gaming the system because they're under the brutal pressure of a single performance measure, that's not just a factory story. That's a people story that people can relate to. But I've probably offended a medical technologist if I compared him or her to a high-tech factory team member. As I worked in healthcare, I started to accumulate stories that were more relevant. Medical technologists were more comfortable hearing about stories from other labs, and I could illustrate lean with examples from those settings. But I also learned that nurses didn't want to hear uh, about stories from labs, and pharmacists didn't want to hear stories from nursing units because, well, they're different. Were there times in my early days of lean healthcare when I could have been better engaged with people? Of course. Even with just over 10 years of lean experience under my belt, not a quote-unquote black belt, by the way, I still wasn't perfect. I was still practicing. I'll continue practicing. I'll probably make more mistakes. I do intend to continue learning and reflecting, and I hope you'll do the same.